Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, president of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square Newswire service. Today, I'm at our studio in suburban Chicago. The Center Square is a national newswire service that was established in 2019 and now publishes more than 60 original straight news stories each day from across the country. Our 501c3 mission allows the Center Square to be republished in hundreds of news outlets across the U.S. New to the Center Square Radio Hour? Maybe so, but you're probably familiar with the journalism from the Center Square. The Center Square covers local, state, and national news and then shares that straight news reporting at no cost to local publishers across the entire United States. Our original taxpayer-centric reporting focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of state and federal government. On this week's Center Square Radio Hour, we'll explore the top stories with the reporters who broke them, from those originating in Washington, D.C., to the underreported stories from the states that hold national relevance. We round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. Orfe Divangi, Ph.D. economist, and also bring you the latest in K-12 education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News team. The Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet in America today, we ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we're going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines this past week. In national news, the Iowa caucuses are just around the corner. In Colorado... Denver mayor says city spending on migrant services is unsustainable. In Illinois, former Illinois Speaker of the House Michael Madigan wants to delay his trial. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Are you tired of news that puts politics over people? At the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation, we believe in putting people over politics by delivering nonpartisan news and audio content that serves you, the American taxpayer. With Franklin News Foundation, you can read fact-based, state-focused news for free at thecentersquare.com. You can listen to civil, balanced conversations between policy experts through our podcast network at americastalking.com. Or you can get in-depth news on K-12 education spending, curriculum, and school safety at chalkboardnews.com. It's all free through Franklin, where we put you, the American taxpayer, first in every story, episode, and conversation. And it's only possible through our supporters. Together, we can produce content that puts people over politics and brings Americans the news they deserve. Become a supporter today at franklinnews.org donate. Once again, that's franklinnews.org slash donate. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. The Iowa caucuses are fast approaching. Dan McHale, Vice President for News and Content of the Franklin News Foundation and Executive Editor for the Center Square, he's here to tell us more. Joining me again today, as he does each and every week, is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. Casey, how are you? Doing good, Dan. How are you? I am doing fine. 2024, of course, is a major election year with voters across the country to decide who the next American president will be. Of course, all of the U.S. House of Representatives seats will be on there. About a third of U.S. Senate seats uh, will be on the ballot in November. For months, we've been talking about all the polls that are out there, including the Center Square's Voters Voice poll. But voters will finally begin to get their official say, and that's in less than two weeks when the Iowa caucuses take place January 15th. Casey, this is going to be a crazy election year with both frontrunners facing a number of issues. 
tell us what to expect heading into the first caucuses, the first primary of sorts, uh, in less than two weeks. Yeah, I mean, you're, you've characterized it correctly, which is, you know, I wrote a story about this uh, for the centersquare.com, and uh, you put the headline on it, chaos. When it comes to these ballot battles, when it comes to the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, this election year is going to be crazy, and it's kicking off here in Iowa. And I think this is going to be, well, it provides a few things. For, for President Trump, you know, I've talked to different experts and analysts about this, and for President Trump, he really has, all he has to do is maintain what the polls say about him, which is he is dominant. No one can catch up to him. He is the inevitable pick for the GOP primary, right? And if he if he's able to dominate in Iowa the way the polls have him, then that's really good. It's not enough for him to just win. He has to win decisively because ultimately he's trying to push, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina former Governor uh, Nikki Haley, who were at a CNN town hall last night, by the way, which was I don't think we'll move the needle too much, but, you know, he's got to push them out of the race. Vivek Ramaswamy, who seems pretty loyal to him anyway, but he's trying to push these guys out of the race so he can save his money for going against Joe Biden, because that's the thing is these primaries are expensive and they drain donor money. They drain, you know, candidates, energy and resources. And the longer the primary drags out, the less time they can focus on what are swing states in the general election. So for Trump's perspective, he wants to end this decisively and quickly so he can focus on the general. For Ron DeSantis, his campaign has been on a steady decline ever since Trump was raided by the FBI a little over a year ago. And so his goal is to show that he actually is still relevant, that he can still take on Trump, and it's definitely an uphill battle for him. But if he outperforms the polls, if he doesn't even have to beat Trump, but if he's up there close to tying Trump or something, then it could start to shift the narrative around him. He can play the Trump card, which is don't listen to the polls. It's about the real American people support me, regardless of what these DCLE polls say, right? So for Nikki Haley, she's focused her attention more on New Hampshire. She hasn't put as much time and money, you know, in focus and even played up her role in Iowa as much as DeSantis has. So I think she's just trying to not get destroyed in Iowa and then perform well in New Hampshire. If she's able to, you know, roughly tie DeSantis in Iowa and then beat him in New Hampshire, that I think that that will check the boxes for her. But it does raise the question of, is it going to be enough to beat Trump in a normal year? I would say, what is normal year with Trump? In a normal year, I would say no. But the caveat here is that, as you know, and as we've talked about many times, the former president faces nearly 100 criminal indictments, not to mention efforts to remove him from the ballot in several states. And if any of that is successful, it could make second place for the GOP nomination more important than ever. Yeah, you mentioned the New Hampshire primaries about a couple of weeks after the Iowa caucuses. And then we get into like one primary after another, after another. Super Tuesday is in March. More than a dozen states uh, are there. So real fairly early on in the year, first quarter, we're going to have a better idea of how this plays out in the GOP primary. Complicating things, though, of course is the four separate federal indictments against the former president, uh, Donald Trump, and how that could throw perhaps curveballs into this situation. We've talked about it before, of course, Casey. What if Trump, which all indications are from the polling, that he's going to walk through the primary season with very little resistance from voters? But what happens if in April or May something new happens or you know he does go to trial? And he's convicted. I mean, how does that play? I've never seen. Well, of course, Trump is the first former president to face federal criminal charges. It's all—it's unprecedented. I mean, I just don't know how that's going to play out during the primary season. 
Yeah, I don't think anyone does. I mean, we're in uncharted territory when it comes to a former president, current candidate facing so many legal charges. I mean, a lot of people have opinions. They've written analysis about, well, it'll play out this way or here's what it says. But ultimately, no one really knows because it is uncharted and the courts can make a judgment call for the president in a way that is just kind of unique. So right now, Trump and his team are trying to delay these criminal proceedings beyond the election. And I think they actually have a really good chance of succeeding in that. Trump has many trial dates, you know, court dates, you know, smattered throughout 2024. But I think they have a really good chance of delaying any um, decisions, any rulings before election. Maybe not for sure, but I think it's a, it's realistic that he could delay everything until after the election. Because honestly, that's that's part of what you pay for these expensive lawyers for, right, Dan? I mean, you <laughs> even if someone is guilty, they are buying time. You you hire them so that they can delay things for years and years, so you get time with your family before having to go to prison. That's like a textbook play mm-hmm. for wealthy individuals who are facing this kind of thing. So that that is not beyond the pale. That that would not be unusual at all if he could do it. And then, so that raises the question: Can he pardon himself? Right? That's a whole sub- separate issue. But I think for him, he just wants to push it past the election and then deal with it when he's president, when he has a lot more power. He can pardon himself, and then that will certainly be challenged. But then that'll have to go to court, and by the time it's all resolved. Uh, it might be kind of too late. He's been president for three years or something. So yeah. yeah, the other question is if he gets convicted before, I don't know. I mean, you know, when his home was raided, it made him a martyr and his polling, you know, DeSantis was doing pretty well against Trump. But as soon as the FBI raided his home, that was the turning point. And that is when Trump soared in the polls. He became a martyr. Republicans rallied around him. Even establishment Republicans who had been skeptical of him, they couldn't stand for the FBI raiding a former president. And so I just want to briefly, think, well, I just want to briefly touch on the Democratic side, Casey. We're almost out of time. Of course, President Biden isn't really facing much of a primary season. Doesn't have a strong, legitimate challenger on the Democratic side. But there are questions about his candidacy as well. He's in his eighties. You know, he's shown visible signs of some issues physically and mentally. Of course, he's facing an impeachment inquiry by the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, Democrats say that's all political, and, and I don't know that that will play much of a factor in the primary process. But there have been some Democrats, particularly behind the scenes, wondering you know, if Biden is the best candidate for them. Just very briefly, um, what are the chances that some something crazy happens and, and it turns out it's not Biden? Yeah, I mean, there's always a chance. Of course, there's going to be plenty more to come. Our listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to our team in D.C. for that update. Immigration has come up in polling and the news is a major concern going into the 2024 election. The city of Denver, like many other sanctuary cities around the country, has seen a growing influx of migrants. Denver Mayor Mike Johnson said migrant services will cost the city $180 million this year. Eliana Carnodal, Assistant General Manager of America's Talking Network, is here to tell us more. Joining me today is Tom Gantert, Managing Editor for The Center Square. How are you, Tom? I'm pretty good. Thank you. So this week you wrote a story about Denver, Colorado, and how the migrant crisis has been affecting them. Mayor Mike Johnston spoke to the city council about the influx of migrants. What did he have to say? Well, he's had a lot to say, actually, in terms of uh, what's going on in the city. And this is a response to uh, a policy that Texas Governor Greg Abbott has had, where he is busing migrants that come through Texas, and he's uh, shipping them to sanctuary cities throughout the U.S. 
And in this instance, Denver Mayor Mike Johnson believes that his city, Denver, is getting more than their share of, of migrants because they are the cheapest ticket from Texas. The other sanctuary cities are uh, New York, Chicago, and uh, Los Angeles that migrants are being shipped to. But in particular, what he was talking about was the cost. And what he said was that the cost is going to be about $180 million in 2024 to deal with the influx of migrants and that he said it wasn't sustainable. So uh, according to him, what is kind of the magnitude of the issue in Denver? How many migrants are they dealing with and how does that compare to the other sanctuary cities? Okay, so on January 3rd, the city said that they had 217 migrants arrive. So in, in one day, they're getting about 200. Uh, the picture he drew was that currently, as of January 3rd, they have 4,488 migrants that are being sheltered in facilities in the city. As of July 16, they had 465. So the issue is, is that the number of migrants has increased from 465 in July to 4,488 in January. And he said that it's going to continue. Now, to, to put the $180 million in context, the city's general fund is about $1.52 billion. So $180 is more than 10% of their entire general fund expenditures. The city spends $86.3 million on Parks and Rec in 2023. So you know, $180 million is is more than twice what the city spends on Parks and Rec, and they have 326 parks in Denver. So he said that they have 150 buses carrying migrants that came to their city in December. So it's a problem that's increased because Abbott's continuing to pressure these communities by shipping migrants every day. I know some cities have instituted policies trying to curb busing. I believe Chicago has made a law about being able to impound some of those buses. Has that been discussed in Denver at all? Well, what has happened in, let's go over the numbers a little bit. So the breakdown, according to Abbott's office, here's the breakdown of the number of migrants he shipped to these sanctuary cities. And this is as of December 20th. So 32,200 to New York City, 24,500 to Chicago, 12,500 to Washington, D.C., 11,100 to Denver, 3,400 to Philadelphia, and 1,250 to Los Angeles. Okay, so... Those cities have responded in different ways. What's happened in Chicago is they claimed that these uh, buses were dropping off migrants in areas that were other than designated drop-off locations. And so then what they did is they passed an ordinance that allowed them to go and impound buses that were dropping off migrants outside of these specific locations. Governor Abbott responded specifically to Chicago by flying migrants from Texas to Chicago and dropping them off at the airport. And then, so they've had a, a back and forth, but the concern in Chicago was that the migrants weren't being dropped off at specific locations. The other issue is that all these cities uh, would like better coordination from Texas. So other cities have passed, communities have, have passed laws that said that uh, these buses have to give several days notice if they're going to drop off migrants so the city or community knows how to deal with them. So, I mean, we've we've done other stories also about the strategy of, of what Governor uh, Greg Abbott's done, because what he has said is that uh, he's going to continue doing this 
until President Biden closes the border or comes up with a border policy in terms of dealing with the situation. Because what he said is that what the sanctuary cities are dealing with is just a fraction of what Texas border cities are dealing with, with this influx of migrants coming in from across the border. Well, thank you, Tom, for your insights on this story. Listeners can keep up with this story at thecentersquare.com. Thank you, Eliana and Tom, for that update. Illinois has also struggled to respond to their growing population of migrants, but immigration is not the only challenge they have been facing. Illinois has long struggled with corruption, and former Illinois Speaker of the House Michael Madigan is the latest example. At a hearing this week, Madigan asked to delay his trial. Let's go back to Dan McCaleb for more on the story. Joining me today is Greg Bishop, the Center Square's Illinois Capitol Bureau senior reporter and editor. Greg, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and yours, Dan. Here we are in 2024, and what a big year it's going to be, no question. A lot of carryover issues, uh, Greg, from 2023, and I'm sure we'll get some curveballs thrown in there, too. Longtime former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan made a rare public appearance this week when he attended a hearing related to his upcoming trial on more than two dozen corruption-related charges. Madigan and his attorneys were successful in delaying his scheduled trial from April of this year to October. One interesting note about the new schedule, Greg, is that the trial is now scheduled to start about a month before the November 5th elections and already into the early voting period for those elections. And on November 5th, when all of Illinois House seats are up for grabs, including seats currently held by Democratic representatives who voted for Madigan time and time again to be their speaker. That could be a little bit awkward. But before we get into that schedule, Greg, tell us about the details of why the delay. So this all, of course, stems around the ComEd bribery scandal that broke in the summer of 2020 uh, and had Madigan as public official A. Then months and months go by and we get more indication uh, that uh, this is indeed involves Madigan with others being charged. And even earlier this year, you had uh, the ComEd 4, several executives from the utility company and lobbyists and uh, the close confidant of Michael Madigan being found guilty. And while they were heading into sentencing, they had actually motioned for a delay in sentencing because of a U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with federal bribery statutes. And the judge ultimately did delay sentencing in that case, kind of gave an indication as to what could happen with Madigan's case, who was originally scheduled to go to trial on 22 counts of racketeering. In April of this year. So while a lot of people were watching for that April date to come for the trial to begin, you had Madigan's attorneys file a motion to delay the trial pending what happens out of the U.S. Supreme Court. So uh, this week, prosecutors, they ultimately said they see no reason for the Madigan corruption trial to be delayed, saying that. The bulk of the counts against Madigan do not involve the federal bribery statute and therefore would not be affected by whatever the decision is from the U.S. Supreme Court case, Snyder v. United States. And that uh, case obviously is something that's expected to be decided later on this year. But regardless of the prosecutors essentially asking for a delay not to be granted, the judge in the case citing the pending U.S. Supreme Court's decision decided Wednesday to go ahead and push the start of Madigan's case. And that, uh, as you noted, is going to be pushed back from April of this year to October 
of this year. So a six month delay in Madigan facing a list of charges and having a jury hear those charges uh, and all of the evidence that we're expecting to get out of that from possible wiretap phone conversations to possible undercover video recordings, things that were evident in the ComEd 4 trial. So obviously there's a lot of twists and turns in this and something that we'll be keeping a close eye on, especially as you noted. It's going to be buttoned up right against the November 2024 election, where you've got every Illinois House seat up for grabs and about uh, half or so of the Illinois Senate seats up for grabs. And whether or not ethics reforms are going to be a priority of the General Assembly heading into spring session, that is yet to be seen, because since the 2020 revelations of the ComEd scandal, we really haven't seen substantive ethics reforms passed at the Illinois State House that Republicans have been demanding even since before Madigan's saga began. Let's talk a little bit more about that calendar, um, Greg. Early voting, if memory serves from past elections, it'll have started by the time this trial starts. So voters will already be deciding on who they want to represent them in the Illinois House. Uh, Madigan, of course, was Speaker of the House for 38 of 40 years leading up to 2020. So any lawmaker, any elected state representative who's in their, at least their third term right now, would have, on the Democratic side anyway, would have voted for Madigan at least as Speaker at least once, many multiple times. Now, of course, the Republican Party is not all that competitive statewide when it comes to these these House races. The Democrats do have a supermajority in the House but what are the what's the likelihood that Republicans will try to use, particularly those who have voted for Michael Madigan as speaker multiple times, use any details that come out during the, the October trial against their opponents? Yeah, I think uh, even before we get to Madigan's trial and the evidence we're uh, expecting to see, you've got evidence that was already released in the ComEd 4 trial uh, where there were guilty verdicts handed down to four individuals. And a lot of that evidence showed the kind of coordination between a close Madigan confidant and uh, some of the other actors in the ComEd 4 story. So I would imagine that that type of thing uh, could possibly be, you know, fair play for the political messaging that's expected heading into the November election. But, you know, the Illinois Republican Party has, uh, even before 2020, uh, they've regularly raised the specter of conflicts of interest, of insider dealing when uh, discussing the power that Mike Madigan had. Uh, Because, listen, he wasn't just the Speaker of the House for a historic amount of time in Illinois. He was also the chairman of the Democratic Party of Illinois. So that nexus of power that he had as somebody who controlled the party purse strings while at the same time controlling what legislation was heard or ultimately passed, that nexus of power has long been a point of criticism of Republicans in Illinois. But whether or not voters will hear that message or whether or not Democrats may counter and say Madigan's no longer in office and he's no longer part of the picture here, we'll see how that plays out with voters. Uh, But clearly, there's going to be a lot of conversation circling Madigan as we head into the the final months of the uh, 2024 election. Thank you to our Illinois team for that update. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we will look at more top stories from across the nation. As 2024 begins, where does the U.S. stand on national debt? 
and what are critics saying about the proposed changes to Title IX. All that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the stories you may have missed at thecentersquare.com. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, at Harvard University, President Claudine Gay announced her resignation on Tuesday after new allegations of plagiarism and scrutiny of her congressional testimony on anti-Semitism. In recent weeks, Gay's presidency has divided the Ivy League University with faculty administrators and the governing Harvard Corporation supporting the embattled president and a group of students calling for her to step down. In Gay's resignation letter, she expressed the difficult decision to step down from the university while saying personal attacks were, quote-unquote, fueled by racism. The letter was void of responsibility for minimizing anti-Semitism, serial plagiarism, intimidating news media, or damage to the reputation of the institution. In Ohio, Attorney General Dave Yost said ending restrictions on concealed carry in the state did not lead to a rise in violent crime. Yost released results from a study by his office in the Center for Justice Research at Bowling Green University that looked at violent crime in Ohio's eight major cities after the new constitutional carry law took effect in June 2022. In the year following the new law, the report showed crimes involving guns dropped across Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Toledo, Akron, Dayton, Parma, and Canton. In California, a new law requires police departments to use individuals' self-provided names and pronouns when posting their mugshots on social media, drawing concerns of potential abuse by criminals. Under Assembly Bill 994, which went into effect on January 1st, police and sheriff's departments must use the name and pronouns given by arrested individuals upon posting a booking photo on social media. That is, unless sharing, in addition other aliases to assist in apprehending an individual, addressing a threat to public safety, or, quote, urgent and legitimate law enforcement interests, end quote. You can find more on these stories and others like them from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more in-depth news on the Center Square Radio Hour. Knowledge is power, and you deserve to know what happens in your state government. That's why the Center Square's reporting zeroes in on state authorities publishing stories that show where your money goes and who spends it. The Center Square gives power to the taxpayer by tracking politicians' use of the people's money and demanding transparency from state-run agencies. This is how the Center Square equips you, the American taxpayer, to hold your state government accountable. Sign up now for your state's Center Square newsletter at thecentersquare.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. As the new year begins, the U.S. national debt surpassed $34 billion. Let's go back to Dan McHale for more on this story. Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. The national debt hit a new milestone at the very end of 2023, and not a good one, I might add, surpassing the $34 trillion, that's trillion, T-R-I-L-L-I-O-N, Mark, I can spell, The situation is so dire, there are renewed calls for a fiscal commission to figure out what the federal government needs to do about it. Bring us up to speed, Casey, on the latest debt crisis. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this story is kind of humorous. A debt commission, Dan, we got all this extra spending leading us into $34 trillion of debt. We need a commission to figure out what to do. Well, maybe we cut the spending, you know, (laughs) let's have a commission. That's like in the new year when you're trying to lose weight and 
and you watch a bunch of YouTube videos and read articles about how to lose weight when really, you know, you just need to go to the gym and eat better. But uh, yeah, $34 trillion, trillion with a T, Dan, this has been exploding in recent, recent years, and it's actually been getting worse now. I mean, the debt's been a, a big problem for many years, but in the last five years or so, it's actually been getting worse faster because uh, we, we hit another bad milestone at around 2020, which was trillion-dollar deficits. Before 2020, our deficits were less than $1 trillion, but now we're in the trillion-dollar deficit market, and sometimes $2 trillion, depending on you know the different legislation and the way they tweak the numbers from year to year. So it's rising. Um, there's other big landmarks that we've talked about. Um, interest on the national debt is about to be the big, biggest expense for U.S. taxpayers. So not defense, not Medicare, not Medicaid, but just interest payments on the national debt is about to be um, the biggest expense for U.S. taxpayers, which is a pretty incredible fact. Also, there's several trust funds like Social Security, like the Highways Fund that are facing insolvency in the coming years. Yeah. If we don't yeah, get, so I'm going to um, come back to that in a second, um, Casey. Mm-hmm. Just just a very brief explainer. You mentioned both the debt and the uh, the deficits. The the deficit is the a- annual budget number where spending exceeds revenue by a certain amount of dollars, meaning, you know, just take your personal finances. You make a pretty good salary, um, Casey, but if you spend more money than you bring in, you accumulate an annual deficit, right? And that's what the... Uh, mm-hmm. That's what the federal government has been doing for decades, essentially. But in 2020, as you mentioned, that annual deficit exceeded a trillion dollars. And what that does is add to the accumulating debt, which is now at more than $34 trillion. And if you keep deficit spending, each year you spend more money than you bring in in revenue, that's going to add to that national debt. Did I get that right? Yes, you're right. I mean, it, that's how it works. And it's important because some experts say, well, you know, our economy is so strong. Our GDP is, of course, the strongest in the world. The United States can afford to carry some debt. But the, the problem is the debt is still growing in the deficit. So theoretically, you can envision a world where lawmakers do something they don't usually do, which is come together and cut spending and get the deficit down to zero. If they did that, we would, be, we would definitely be in a much better place financially. And we probably would potentially be okay because the economy is going to keep growing, right? And if the debt doesn't keep growing um, or at the same rate or faster than the economy, then we can probably afford to carry some of this debt. But when the debt is growing this fast and is actually getting larger than the GDP, you're running into a lot of problems. And we're seeing this, Dan, you know, with interest rates on homes, for instance, you know, uh, there is some debate over this, but it's definitely true that debt spending uh, it worsens inflation. And because inflation has been so bad, in part because of federal debt spending, they've had to raise interest rates, which is an attempt to cut inflation, but it has the, uh, the externality of making mortgages very expensive. And so mortgage rates right now are around 8%. And so, you know, you can say that all, you know, 34 trillion, it's just numbers on a page. It's, you know, the U.S. can afford to have this, but there are real world impacts. There are 8% interest yeah, and, rates. And, and, it was, and as a result of those interest rates, fewer people bought homes. Um, last right, year, right. because mortgages were just out of control because of that eight percent interest rate. So this, this, all of this stuff, sort of works together and affects the economy overall. And if the U.S. federal government can't get its deficit spending under control, um, this is only going to get worse. It's only going to balloon. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, I was a little uh, cynical on the debt commission, but it's true that, you know, if that helps, I think that's great. I think this is something bipartisan Americans and especially American taxpayers can agree that this is something that needs to be dealt with. It's their money that's being overspent. Um, $34 trillion, you know, we, we should pass $35 trillion this year, Dan. I mean, so this isn't, I mean, this, this is a big milestone, but we'll, we'll hit it again this year um, unless, unless well, something and, changes. And honestly, Casey, I don't blame you for being cynical about the, uh, the, the debt commission. I mean, it's not like it's a new idea. This, that's been floated out there for, for years and years, even decades. And we still haven't been able to get government spending um, under control. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. But we are out of time. Thank you for your insight, Casey. Thanks again to our DC team for that update. While the growth of national spending and the U.S. debt has been a consistent story of late, so is the debate over the place of transgender athletes in student sports. A Title IX rule change, which was originally expected in October, is now anticipated in March. Critics have raised several concerns about the impact the rule change will have. Dan McCaleb is back to tell us more. Joining me today is Brendan Clary, Chalkboard's K-12 editor. Brendan, now that the calendar has flipped to 2024, we are just a couple of months away from a controversial new Title IX rule uh, that would add gender identity and sexual orientation to federal law prohibiting sex discrimination in the nation's schools. Schools that don't follow the law risk losing federal funding. But critics say the law, or the new rule, excuse me, illegally rewrites the law without congressional approval and could be a danger to girls because it will mean biological boys who identify as girls could participate in girls' sports. Bring us up to date on this story, Brennan. Yeah, yeah, Dan. It's uh, there's a lot of back and forth on this, as I've written about before, and a lot of other outlets who you know cover this sort of thing have written about before as well. And you know, we did recently publish pieces that this has been moved to March now, and that there is a delay on getting these rules that were initially expected in October, right? So we are kind of waiting on that. But yeah, so Title IX, you know, at its core, is a civil rights statute, and it you know says that there needs to be equal opportunity for men and women in academic settings with that federal funding. So federal money that goes to these institutions, public schools, uh, colleges, universities that take federal money, they have to provide equal opportunity to men and women. And at the time when it was written in the 1970s, there were, uh, as far as I understand it, you know, there were some institutions that did not actually allow women to to be in them, like med school or different law schools. So that was kind of the intent there, right? And but you know, the 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 question that we're we're talking about with some of the sports stuff that that stems out of it, right? And so there are these right. I I, I remember like when it comes to sports, it particularly affected college sports because men had sports like football, and you know, the bigger schools they give out ninety plus scholarships to boys, but there wasn't the same thing on the girls' side. They gave out fewer scholarships, and this forced these colleges and universities to have an equal number of sports scholarships and academic scholarships for boys and girls. We're talking, now this affects both K-12 through education and college sports, but this dramatically affects K-12 through schools. 
Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, that that was how critics of the proposed changes, they say that, you know, the law was instated for that reason, right, to provide equal opportunities to men and women in these institutions. But then the Biden administration, in their view, so I talked to Jennifer Braceris, uh, the director of the Independent Women's Law Center, who is a former member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And she was, you know, she was explaining that essentially, you know, this was a very specific statute for one thing, and that was to prohibit schools that accept federal dollars from discriminating on the basis of sex. But she said, you know, essentially, the Biden administration's what she calls like a a rewrite, essentially, is that this would expand it in covering, you know, it, it would reverse the presumption that schools can offer separate sports teams for males and females, she said. And so like under the proposed rule, then women's sports aren't just for women anymore. They're for anyone who identifies as a woman, unless a particular school can demonstrate that keeping a particular team female meets these important educational objectives that are uh, you know, laid out in the rule. So basically, it it expands the rule into something that you know maybe was not originally intended for. So that's sort of the the concern there in terms of the the rewriting of it, and it would have that aspect. So it is the specific Title IX rule, but that applies to all facets of academia, right, including sports. So that's sort of the other confusing thing about this, Dan, is that there's actually two different rules now kind of working their way through the bureaucracy. There is a broader Title IX rule that affects if a school takes federal money, they have to include gender identity and sexuality. And there's there's a number of other different things that it would change, but that is one of the bigger ones, right? And then there's a specific proposed rulemaking on the athletic teams. So that is like a smaller thing. And that's something that the Biden administration pointed to and said, you know, we're going to release that later. We're going to release that separately. So that sort of muddies the water when we're talking about this, that Title IX governs all of these different areas of, you know, academic life in terms of equal opportunity for men and women. But then it would also specifically apply to the athletic rule. And so there is two different rules there, but the different, you know, the changing of the scope of the statute would apply to both. So it was initially supposed to go into effect in October. There were delays. Lots of uh, critics particularly commented on it, and that was one of the reasons given for the delay. Now it is March. Of course, you know, March, most schools generally have a calendar that's, you know, August or September to May or June. March is like smack dab in the middle of the second half of the school year. Are schools going to be impacted right away I mean, I don't, I don't know. Tell, tell our listeners what you mean. Well, for Perseris, when she was talking to me, uh, Jennifer Perseris there from the Independent Women's Law Center, she basically said right now the, the Biden administration doesn't really have a, a reason to move on this uh, more quickly because as soon as they do finalize it, it can be challenged in court. So right and now they expect that, I assume. Yeah, I think everybody kind of expects that. That's, you know, I think that that's a logical reason why people would comment on it in the first place so that they can sort of list out like your legal arguments against this, you know, and then we had a number of Republican governors and state superintendents weighing in and saying that this is unfair or this rewrites the law and, you know, the Department of Education doesn't actually have the authority to do this without the approval of Congress. So there are these legal arguments that are being built into these comments and, you know, the, the Department of Education has to respond to those in turn and go through those. So that's, that is, you know, another challenge that there were hundreds of thousands of comments on these rules, right? And so that is, you know, a very, a big poll, right? You really do have to lift to, to get that done, right? To go through all these comments and, and come up with responses to them. But at the same time, th- they're just not really a motivation, I think, to get it done sooner, because right now, I think there is might maybe an understanding that like, you have to, to do these things, or you will lose federal funding. Like there is maybe a little bit of like the federal government saying, this is what we expect schools to do. 
and until they you know finally put it out there and then there's a legal challenge to it th- there is sort of like this is what we expect even before the rule is done so that that's kind of Bercera said that there the administration is deliberately delaying releasing the final rule so that the opponents of the rule can't formally challenge it so she kind of sees it as that there is maybe a bit of motivation there that you know if if it's not finalized you can't take legal action against it and so it sort of is is standing in that liminal space interesting Brenna. i i fully expect you and the team at chalkboard news to continue updating our listeners and our readers at jockboardnews.com about this developing story in March. Yeah. <laughs> March is just around the corner, um, really. And this would be a big, big change in how schools operate. As you said, though, we expect legal challenges, so who knows what comes of that. But we are out of time. The listeners can keep up with all of Chalkboard's K-12 education reporting at chalkboardnews.com. Thank you, Dan and Brendan, for that update. All American taxpayers are stakeholders in our educational system, and that's true for our economy as well. Joining me, as always, to discuss the most important economic trends and news is Ph.D. economist Dr. Orfe Devungi. Dr. O, happy New Year. It's so great to be back with you. Good morning, Chris. It's uh, great to be back in the studio. Happy New Year. We walk into some pretty significant economic data, literally just uh, released you know, this morning. Department of Labor is saying that we added 216,000 jobs in the month of December. That would be about a 40,000 job increase over the month of November, and it's blowing people away. Very few people that track or forecast thought that we would come in with a number that strong. What do you think's underlying and uh, and what does it mean in this moment? Well, you know, again, we talked about this back in December. Uh, we said, look, the Fed came in and showed the world that it expected economic growth to slow and inflation to potentially even fall below 2%, below its target. And that, that would imply rate cuts, roughly three rate cuts in 2024. And the markets overreacted. The markets overreacted. We saw the markets pricing in six rate cuts for 2024 at the end of the last year. Great holiday gift for those waiting to buy a home because mortgage rates tumbled. Great holiday gift for those looking to take on more debt because basically yields, short-term yields, long-term yields came down. Financial and credit conditions eased. It was really, really, really a lot of fun. But I warned at the end of last year that the easing of financial and credit conditions could essentially kind of give consumers that little boost and potentially cause disinflation, the process of disinflation to slow down. And sure enough, we've been seeing this since November, right? In October, we had the surge in yields. And as soon as November came in, yields came down, easing financial and credit conditions. November, we saw economic activity increase in November. And then now in December, we see, we see another uptick in economic activity in December. We're going to go into January, and I can promise you that everyone who was betting that the Fed would be cutting in the first quarter of 2024 is likely going to be losing a lot of money on that bet. You know, the market's now reacting again and correcting from this, uh, that enthusiasm that we saw at the end of last year. 
and now that you know it's coming back in line with what the Fed had in mind, you know, going from pricing in six rate cuts to last time I checked, pricing in four rate cuts. And after today's jobs report, I think we're down to where we probably need to be, where yields probably need to be with the market pricing in the three rate cuts and maybe even less now because, you know, that process of disinflation is kind of slowing down and potentially even stalling in the first quarter could mean yields would climb again. Now, so let's talk about yields real quick. The 10-year treasury is important because it's a benchmark, right? That was up nine basis points earlier this week. I think it was on Wednesday. And, you know, was that 3.995 or something like that? Yeah, and it, knock, and- knocking, on the four, knocking on the 4% door. By the way, it came down a lot from 5% in October, right? So right. surged in October. Right. Came right. down quite a bit, and the and the and the importance of that is, is you know, I mean, if you're going to make like a bet with your money, if you have money to invest, and if you put it into a ten year treasury, you get a guaranteed return of whatever that number is. So you're not putting it into the market, you're not dealing with the volatility of of stocks or or mutual funds. You're you're buying treasuries that are guaranteed to return you a, a rate of X percent. In this case, three point nine nine five. I mean, that's right. The treasury, the 10 year treasury note is basically U.S. debt. You are basically lending money to the U.S. government. That's really what it is. And why is it so important? It's important because banks own that stuff and it affects their balance. The the yield affects their balance sheets. And so we saw in March, for example, that uh, you had a somewhat of a banking crisis because, you know, banks, the value of the notes held by banks had tumbled as yields increased at the start of this year. And so banks were in some, somewhat a bit of trouble. And so people got worried about that and started taking their money out of the banking system. But basically, look, to, just to make it really simple, treasury yields are a function of current inflation and economic growth, as well as expectations about future economic conditions. And I always say to people, I say, look, you know, if I were to lend you money today, I would want a return on that investment that pays me above and maybe a little bit beyond the rate of inflation. Otherwise, I'd be losing money. Right. It's not a good and deal. So, it's not a good deal for me otherwise. Of course. And so inflation and, and expected economic conditions is going to determine that what that yield is going to be for lending to the U.S. government. And that 10-year treasury yield also, because it's because banks own that stuff, it's also going to determine the kind of credit card interest rates you're going to get. Uh, mortgage rates tend to follow the 10-year as well. And so, you know, the type of loans that you're going to get, you know, those long-term loans over that, you know, 10-year, 20, 30-year horizon, right? And so mortgage rates really follow the 10-year. And we saw that, of course, when the 10-year goes down, well, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Those yields really matter for the kind of lending consumers are going to get, right? And so if you're wondering, okay, why should this matter to me? It matters because if you have a credit card or if you're looking to take out another credit card, if you have some debt, right? And let's give you another scarier example, I guess. You have a number of businesses that will need to refinance their debt in 2024. And if you're going to have to refinance your debt in 2024, you're faced with much higher interest rates 
than you were only about a year and a half ago or two mm -hmm. years ago. And so that really matters. And if you can't refinance it, if you don't have enough cash on hand and you can't refinance your debt, well, how do you make payroll? And so that has huge implications for not just consumers, but businesses. And ultimately, those businesses hire and create the jobs that we need to keep going in America today. Great to spend time with you today. That will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network, produced by Eliana Kernodal. If you miss some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. I'm Chris Krug. On behalf of everyone at the Franklin News Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.